This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. This is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. Stan Silverman is the author of Be Different, The Key to Business and Career Success, a wonderful, practical book. A recognized thought leader and influencer, Stan publishes a widely read, nationally syndicated column on leadership in the Philadelphia Business Journal and 42 affiliated business publications across the United States. Stan is the former president and CEO of Global PQ Corporation and is a senior executive in residence at the LeBeau College of Business of Drexel University, where he earned his engineering and MBA degrees. He is vice chairman of Drexel University's Board of Trustees and the former chairman of its medical college. He also serves on the boards of three K-12 independent schools and is a member of the faculty of Board Advisory Services of the National Association of Corporate Directors. In this episode, Stan and I talk about what it takes to be different and how crucial it is to learn how to do so if one is to succeed in one's career and in the rest of life. It's not an easy thing to do. We talk about the value of trust, perhaps a leader's most precious asset, and what it takes to build it and how fragile it can be. Being genuinely interested in the lives of the people around you is one of the most important means for developing a reputation as someone who's trustworthy, as we discuss. And from the wisdom Of his incredible experience, Stan offers some compelling examples of what it means to be accountable for acting ethically at work and in other key relationships in life and for holding others to that standard, especially by striving to serve as a role model, which is a lesson he learned early in his life, as you'll find out. Well, I hope you like the Work and Life podcast, and if you do, If you haven't yet, please subscribe to it. Do it now if you haven't done so. And rate it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening so others are more likely to find it and enjoy it as well. And now, get set to learn about ethics, about building your unique brand, and much more in this conversation with my friend, the Leadership Authority, Stan Silverman. Dan Silverman, welcome to Work and Life. Well, thank you, Stu, for inviting me on your show. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you here, Um, especially someone local, someone who I consider a friend, uh, who has uh, really contributed to the education of students here at the Wharton School and to enlightening a lot of people with, uh, with your ideas. One of the things that's rare in this world is to be both a great uh, practitioner 
of the art and science of leadership and to be reflective about it and to, to draw lessons from your experience that you can share with other people. And you, you do that really well. And we're all grateful to you for it, Stan. So you've been extraordinarily successful by putting people, clients, customers, employees, by putting them first, by understanding the importance of people. That's, that's I think, a, an important aspect of who you are, what you stand for. Could you, just by way of introduction, getting us started here, articulate the essence of your philosophy and how you, someone trained as an engineer, uh, not as a psychologist, not as an anthropologist, not as an artist, uh, how did you come to see that managing people is indeed the key to business success? Well, you learn that real quick as you you climb the ladder uh, within your organization that nothing really can get done without the proper team behind you and without the right people in the right spot and uh, and how trust is so important uh, to develop between yourself and your people uh, because without trust, uh, nothing really much gets accomplished. And you can see this in so many organizations mm-hmm. where people are taking action and making decisions to protect their back um, and uh, they don't collaborate. You can say cover your ass here on this show. Okay, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Steve. Uh, uh, and they don't collaborate. They basically do what's good for them rather mm-hmm. than what's good for the customer or their client. And no business can be successful if they're not focused on the customer and client and giving, giving them a great experience. Mm-hmm. So what do you see as like, the prime contributor to the mistrust and internecine you know, competitiveness and warfare that, that you, you see so often in organizational settings uh, here in this country and abroad? Well, I think it starts uh, with tone at the top and with institutional or corporate culture. Um, I've been doing this for plus four decades, and I've seen a lot of organizations, my own uh, included, the one I've come up through, through 11 jobs at PQ Corporation. Thank you. I've sat on 14 boards, uh, three public companies, private companies, private equity companies, trade associations, where I was chairman of one, um, and I'm on four educational institution boards. And in every case, the common denominator for success is tone at the top of a leader and the right culture. So what is tone at the top? How do you define that? Tone at the top is defining the ethics and integrity um, upon which you're going to operate your company and how you expect people to treat each other. Uh, Culture gets into um, how you deal with folks on the inside, on the outside, how you help everybody be uh, successful in their business. Uh, whether they're internal customers or external customers. And uh, everybody wants to, ru- wants to work for a company where the tone is great, where the culture is great. What does that mean, to, for a tone to be a great one? What it, what it, what's required? Well, first, uh, if you have good tone and culture, uh, you're going to get up in the morning and you want to come to work. Uh, it means you don't have to go home at night and worry that uh, – Somebody's doing something in either gray area or the black area, and they're worried that the next day the feds are going to knock on the door because they've broken the law. Nobody wants to work in that kind of environment or that kind of culture. They Mm -hmm. want to go to bed and think about the great things they're going to do tomorrow and not worry about um, what might follow them if, in fact, uh, they do something illegal or unethical. So we're, we're starting at the top. We're going to work our way down right. <laughs> uh, of, of uh, typical organizational hierarchy. But tone at the top, 
what's what's a good example of of what that looks like in in an executive's day to day life? Well, the best way I can do that is perhaps give an example of where the tone wasn't so so okay. good. Uh, and I think there's two that I can think of immediately, and one is Wells Fargo. We're all familiar with uh, the scandal that broke a couple of years ago. Where Not everyone. Not everyone. So give well, us a sketch. Me, so um, within Wells Fargo, within the community banking uh, division, uh, their vice president, Carrie Tolstet, uh, basically uh, established a culture where – the uh, people within the bank interfacing with their customers and with their clients would set up phony accounts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, because uh, Carrie and her management was incentivized on that metric, mm-hmm. and the pressure was so high uh, for these people to do this, uh, a number of people quit, a number of people left, complaints were sent to the government, uh, there was an investigation. Um, and it continued for five years until uh, finally Carrie was forced out of her of her position. Uh, it cost the bank literally billions of dollars in fines and lost business and uh, and damage to their reputation. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were people that uh, reported uh, what was occurring to the hotline, uh, the ethics hotline of the bank, which of course uh, is not only best practice but common practice in. Well, every public company, and these people were ter- six of them were terminated. So, what was wrong with the tone at the top in that instance, the Wells Fargo case? John Stumpf, the CEO of the company, didn't f- learn, didn't do something when he found out what was going on. I would have fired Tolstead immediately. She would have been out so fast, she wouldn't know what what happened to her. But he tolerated that, and the mm. board tolerated it. The board Stumpf reported to the board that he had a problem five years before all the fines hit. And he said he would fix it. And, of course, the board said, okay, uh, tell us when it's fixed. Year after year, he would report the problem. Why did he not do anything about it in your in your assessment from some distance? Well, I don't think he had it within him to do it. Um, I would have expected to be fired the second year. If I had gone back to my board and say, well, we still have this problem, I'd be out the – I'd expect to be fired. you got to fix that stuff. You just can't allow that to happen. So mm-hmm. he was not a strong leader. And the board, for whatever reason, didn't hold him accountable for tone and for culture. Uh, so I maybe on, it wasn't just him. I served on a lot of boards. And when I raise the issue, when we uh, view the um, when we do the performance review of the CEOs, I have people push back to me on the board saying, well, we don't really have to look at that. We just look at the numbers. No, you don't just look at the numbers. So one of the ways that you generate a culture in which people feel trust in their leadership if I have it right, what you're saying, is to uh, hold people accountable for acting in a way that's in accord with the highest ethical standards. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, if, and, they, and that if you don't do that, you're going to, you're going to lose control and, and the trust of your people and other stakeholders. Right. And it's going to cost you a ton of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the most, important, the most important thing any company has is its reputation. And therefore, they have to work and operate in a way that protects their reputation, which means they have to do the right thing. And that's true for us as individuals as well, of course. Exactly. We all have to have that as part of But it's so easy to be tempted. It's so easy to do, well, nobody's looking. Maybe I can just get away with it because it's going to benefit me or it's going to benefit my my family or benefit my buddies or – how do you, what do you do? What have you learned in your many years uh, toiling in the, in the fields 
about what you do to hold yourself accountable and hold others accountable for living in a, in a way that's consistent yeah. with your ethical standards. I've thought about that a lot, and I get, think it gets back to how we were all raised by our parents. Hmm. Um, my parents were solid middle-class folks. My dad ran his own small business, and uh, he was known to be extremely ethical, and that's the lesson he taught my brother and I, is to be extremely ethical in your dealings with other people. And I was just raised that way. I was raised that way. What about for those of us who didn't have good role models growing up in our families? What 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 do you do for the? I would say most of us who didn't have that in this uh, in this torn and difficult world. I think the biggest decision many of us have is how we're going to live our lives, mm-hmm. and we, that has to come from within. That has to come from within. Either going to be ethical and honest and have integrity and do everything. Uh, you do with integrity, or you're not going to do that. And uh, your own personal reputation uh, depends upon uh, those those factors. And we ourselves have to decide whether we want to live our life with a great reputation or not. And to some people, it's important. Other people, it's not important. You don't want those people running your businesses. The people who act in a way that is inconsistent that, that with is your incon- ethical that standards. That is inconsistent, yes. Because because it, it creates a culture in which people are competing with each other, where they don't trust the messages that they're getting uh, from the top, and they're not going to act in a way that's uh, in accord with what the goals of the organization are. You use the word compete with each other. Mm-hmm. That's not a bad word. Um, oh. you, we can compete with each other, but we do it in the right way. Yes, thank so, you for clarifying. So uh, as Very I was important. coming up through my career... You want competition for, for, well, first on, of based all, on merit. It makes you better. Of course, of course. It makes you better. And I've had people snipe at me as I've gone up through the organization. And I decided that I was going to do my job to the best degree that I could mm-hmm. and let the results speak for themselves. And I'm the one that made it to the CEO ship, and they didn't. Uh, and so at least in my organization, it worked out that way. It doesn't work out all the time that way. Unfortunately but not. But I'm going to live my life the way I think I should live my life. Well, so you learned that from your folks uh, in part, as you say. Um, again, many people come up in environments that are you know, not so beneficent and where the, you know, the role models are, are, are not worth following. Um, what have you learned in your coaching, the many people that you have mentored over the years, uh, about how to help people become more aware of how they can make the sorts of hard choices that we're talking about here, uh, and which we will shortly talk about in terms of their impact on your life beyond work? Well, let me give you an example from one of the classes that uh, you allowed me to address many years ago okay. on leadership. Uh, I for the audience, um, I spoke with nine of Stu's MBA classes uh, many, many years ago. And it that was just, long ago. Yeah, it was just it was a delight to do so. Well, you had a great uh, impact on our class. Well, thank you. So but what do you recall from rem- that? I can remember yes. a gentleman on the last row on my right. I don't remember which oh, class it was. Always a dangerous position. And we're talking about obeying the laws of the land in which we operate. Uh Because that was one of our core values within PQ Corporation. We obey the laws of the land in which we operate. Duh. And he gets up and he asks, well, 
what if I'm the general manager of our business in Indonesia and I can't mm. get this contract unless I make a facilitating payment? Mm-hmm. And I said, I. well. I.e. bribe. Well, right. And I said to him, well, do you know that, number one, it's against the laws of the United States of America and you can go to jail for that? He said, yeah, I know, but I won't meet my goals. I said, well, mm-hmm. if you were in my company and I was your CEO and I found out you did that, you'd be gone tomorrow. You'd be out. And I don't care how good of a performance a performer you are, mm-hmm. you'd be gone immediately. Um, we had a general manager in our company um, who operated our European operation, and he was trading with Iran at the time when there was an uh, embargo on it. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I said, why are you doing that? You know it's against policy of our company, but also against U.S. law. He says, well, I'm not a U.S. company. I'm a European company. I said, no, you're the subsidiary of U.S. company. And he's gone. He was gone the next day. And so that gets around the organization pretty quick. When you operate, a message. When you operate in 19 countries and mm-hmm. you have everybody operating and you want to empower people to do what they need to do to meet their goals and to grow their business. To be autonomous but and free and exa- how they pursue their goals. They have to do it within certain rules. And mm-hmm. the rule is you obey the laws of the land in which you operate and you obey U.S. law. And so uh, that message gets out real quick when you take that kind of action. And that is, again, uh, a way of uh, thinking about holding people accountable by enforcing standards of, uh, of ethical behavior that, um, that everyone ought to know. And if they don't, they are, they are, there, are, there are consequences for them, negative consequences for them. And the CEO has to, is the one that enforces that. And, of course, that's the last thing you want to do. You want to say, you want to tell everybody what the tone is going to be. We're going to obey the laws of the land in which we operate, and you expect everybody to do that. But if you have to, you have to enforce it. Let's stay with this topic of trust because I think it, it really is the, the very currency of leadership, and, and you can't have enough of it in your life uh, surrounding you, people who believe in you, who trust you, who, who are willing to uh, accede to your requests, even if they might seem in the moment unreasonable, or, and to, to give you that extraordinary effort that you need to, to be successful. Um, you've given us a couple of great examples of, of how to lose it. What about how to cultivate it? What have you found uh, in terms of positive actions that helps you, helps especially younger people coming up to, uh, to build the kind of trust around them that they need to succeed as they grow? I think the first thing any leader needs to do is to um, develop a rapport with the folks reporting to them and reporting around them, even their peers, they need to talk them, talk with them, find out uh, about their lives, find out about their families, um, indicate to them that you're just a human being that has a different job title. You're no different. You're not imperial. Have you have you done that? I've walked around, and I'll give you a great example. This is my best example, and it's in the book. Uh-huh. And so um, we were supplying in our out of our Kansas City plant. Uh, detergent zeolite, which went into powdered detergents for Colgate, Lieber, and Procter and Gamble. Colgate decided to exit their business uh, across the country and no longer be in the powdered detergent business. And so uh, we had to shut down our plant that supplied them. Mm. They were like ninety percent of the uh, of the volume of the plant. Mm-hmm. And so we announced the shutdown on Monday. We laid off seventeen uh, hourly people. I flew out Tuesday morning to talk with the survivors of the plant. And um, everybody was very people who weren't let go, right? But 
it was a union plan, so everybody was bumping into bumping down jobs. So uh, they're they're figuring out what job they're going to take next. So some of the people that worked mm-hmm. on the zeolite plant would still be employed because they had seniority, but they mm-hmm. were bumping other people. So the plant was a mess. It was in chaos, and I'm sitting in a round circle talking with with the employees, w- telling them why we did this. That mm-hmm. we didn't do this ourselves. We did it because our customer mm-hmm. exited the business. They wanted names. They wanted to know what business manager took this project to the board and got it approved and spent $30 million on this plant where we went out and hired 17 people to run the plant three years before. They could have gotten jobs elsewhere, so they've just interrupted their career for three years. They're angry. They wanted names. Mm -hmm. And so I'm calmly explaining what's going on. And one of the young young, uh, operators says to me, what do you know? You've never worked in a plant. You're the COO of the company. All you do is sit behind a desk and push paper every day. You don't know what it's like to work in the plant. Mm-hmm. Bingo. Thank you very much. I said, well, let me tell you, when I was a co-op at Drexel University, I worked in a plant just like this. Mm-hmm. I carried your father's or grandfather's toolbox. I was their assistant. Mm-hmm. I got dressed like the, up like them. I did electrical work. I did uh, welding work. Mm-hmm. I learned so much from your father and grandfather. So don't tell me I don't know what it's like to work in a plant. Mm-hmm. Well, the temperature in a room automatically goes way up. All of a sudden, there's no more stress in the room. He's one of us. He mm-hmm. knows what it's like to work in a plant. Mm-hmm. And that diffused any of the anger they had because I related to them in a very personal way. You've got to find a way to identify or to have your, the people around you feel like you're a human being right. just like them. And he gave me the opportunity, and mm-hmm. I was able to dig deep down into 20 years past mm-hmm an experience which were able to make me relate to them. Mm-hmm. And I did that. Yeah, uh, which is one of the reasons why I like to tell people that my first job after college was driving a taxi in New York City. I've got some street cred. You have some street literally. some street smarts. <laughs> um, so, uh, but not everybody has that kind of background or experience, right? Uh, and, and can relate, but... Everyone has somehow within them the capacity to reveal themselves as a human being just like the people around you, whether they're reporting to you, looking up the hierarchy, or next to you, or even looking down at you from high on. So what advice do you have for people about how to demonstrate that you are human? Walk around, ask people how they're doing. Don't tell them what to do because you're violating the chain of command. If you come mm-hmm. off as a human being... If you mean skipping levels. Right, down, right, down. right. So if you come off as a, a human being, they're going to tell you a lot, especially people down in the organization, because they don't get a chance to talk with the CEO too often. So inquiring. Simply Say, asking. how are you doing? What problems are you running into? How's mm-hmm. this project going? Are you going to be on time? What do you think is the next thing you should be doing? Who has time for that, though, Stan? It's, I got meetings to get to, yeah, if I can it, be role-playing a, 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 a classic middle manager mindset. It's one of the most important things any leader can do is to walk around and just get a feel for what's going on and talk with the people. Just talk with the people. Don't act like an imperial CEO. When I became CEO of the company, uh, I came from the COO position. I had a row office next to the corner office. No, dear. When the CEO left- We I all did, know what that means. I did not move to the corner office. You didn't. I stayed in my office, and people would ask me, well, when are you going to move into the corner office? I said, well, my first focus is trying to get this company growing again, mm-hmm. and I'm really not interested at this point thinking about that. We're thinking about other things. And one of our executive assistants came in and said, well, we, we know that you really don't want to work move to the corner office, why don't we convert it into 
a living room where we can entertain people from outside across a sofa and a coffee table rather than a, a mm-hmm. conference table. Mm-hmm. I said, that's a great idea. So we scrounged up some furniture. We made it into that kind of room. Anybody in the office in, in the building could use it. And I didn't come off as an imperial CEO because I stayed in my row office. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be viewed by everyone as just just like them. I work here. I just have a different job title. I have more responsibility, but I'm no better than them. I I earn my way, and I don't. I didn't forget where I came from. Mm-hmm. I didn't upgrade my car. I drove the same car that my guys drove. The people reporting to me, I could have spent another couple hundred bucks a month for a bigger mm-hmm. car. What do I need that for? That's not going to add to shareholder value. So I stay with my car. Well, people notice that stuff. They do notice that stuff. And all of a sudden, people starting to talk to you. We're talking a lot about trust, Stan, and I want to I want to stay on that because it is such an important topic. Um. How does living in a trusting kind of environment in your business life affect your life outside of work? Well, it means that uh, when you go home for dinner um, and you interface with your family, you can focus on them and not focus on what happened during the day because something went wrong. Mm. Or uh, your company's doing the wrong thing or your boss is doing the wrong thing or somebody's attacking you for some reason. Um, it really improves your quality of life when you can work in an organization where people trust each other. Because you're just less stressed about all the bull stuff right. that happens right. uh, in, in environments where people are uh, competing in a negative way in the sense of trying to put the other person down through right. untoward means. Right. You really, you really want to... You're always competing with um, with your peers. And in mm-hmm. fact, a part of my book is about how you can be different than your peers so you get the next promotion or the next job. Mm-hmm. And it has nothing to do with throwing people under the bus because that doesn't work. That gets discovered real quick. And in fact, uh, in a lot of organizations, the organizations will kill you if you're that kind of leader, that mm-hmm. kind of manager. Mm-hmm. Uh, they won't tolerate it. They'll spit you out. I've mm-hmm. seen it happen so many times that uh, the defensive mechanism of the organization will basically destroy you. So you need to compete in the right way, which is in a collaborative way. You need to bring people together. And then you get the reputation that, hey, maybe this is the kind of guy we want to move up a level because he's so good at bringing people together and forming great teams and getting great results. And that leaves you in a greater sense of uh, calm or uh, peace when you find a way to leave work, whether that's physically or psychologically, because sometimes you have to create that boundary between your work and your family and your community life um, psychologically, because you might be doing all of that in the same place. A lot of people just work at home, right? right. And so they have to find a way to make that make that um, shift from their work mind <laughs> and social life to their home life. And to do that in a way that allows you to focus on your family, focus on your friends and your own personal needs and interests, spiritually, your physical health, your emotional health. You're saying it's easier to do that if you work in an environment where trust is the order of the day. I absolutely believe that, and I've had that experience. Uh, I used to work in an environment where uh, our boss was a tyrant, and um, I was stressed all the time. Mm -hmm. 
And all the people working for him and working around him were stressed all the time. And it wasn't visible, or maybe it was visible to the CEO, but the CEO did nothing about it. And we always wondered why he let that happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I eventually got promoted um, to be his peer when I became president of our Canadian company. Before we get to yeah. what happened next, though, I want right. to stay on, like, okay. how did that experience affect your kids? Um, I try not to let it affect my kids. But obviously, if you're stressed out and you're not focused on them and you're thinking about something else, it's going to affect everybody around you in the family. It affected my wife. I mean, she knew exactly yeah. what was going on. How did, in what way did it affect her, if you're willing to share well, about that? Well, sure. So um, I was probably less verbal and vocal about things we mm-hmm. should be talking about because I was thinking about uh, how I'm going to defend myself at work mm-hmm. tomorrow. And so it has a huge effect. Yeah. You, know, you, never, you never want to bring that stuff home. You want to come home and focus on your family and your kids. Yes, because they need your attention, and yet it's, Absolutely. it's hard to create those boundaries, especially today, of course, in the digital age uh, and the, the increasing norm of you know always on. Uh, what, what have you learned about that in terms of how you build trust by attending to the people who depend on you outside of work and how that affects how you show up in your work role? Looks like the other way around. Right. Well, if everything's going well at home, you don't have to worry about them when you're working. You can completely focus on what you need to do. So it's the same, it's the same so thing. so it goes both ways. No, I'm, I'm glad you brought up that point because it's a very true point. It goes both ways. And, and how do you advise the people that you mentor, coach, and help to bring up in the world uh, uh, as to how they can best do that? build the kind of trusting relationships in their home and family and community lives that enable them to be the kind of person who's going to succeed in the business world? Well, I think the principles are the same. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think with your friends, you want to build trust with your friends, with your family, with the outside organizations that that you belong to. So that when you say something, uh, when you make a commitment, you meet your commitment Mm -hmm. and your word is your bond Mm -hmm. uh, where people respect what you do and what you say and they can trust you. And so if you're sitting on a committee, a church committee, or you're sitting on a little league committee and you say you're going to do A, B, and C, you do A, B, and C. And then people will they'll know that you will meet your commitments because you've developed a track record of meeting your commitments and you'll you'll be asked to do other things. And that's going to affect your business success. Well, sure. You just feel good about yourself because you always meet your commitments. I write a lot that you don't make a commitment unless you can meet the commitment. And if for some chance you find out you can't meet the commitment, you got to tell that person immediately because maybe she's made a commitment to somebody else based upon mm-hmm. your commitment to her. Of course. And so immediately- We are you, an interdependent world. Immediately <laughs> you have to you have to let people know. So many people forget to do that, though. They assume. Yeah, well, so why? <laughs> oh, that's true. I'm the psychologist here. I should have an answer to that. Right, I should ask you that question. Right? <laughs> but but it's but we're talking about your wisdom, oh, I know, I know, uh, I know. not mine. That's I'm just, okay. I'm just asking the dumb questions here. That's okay. Um, well, but seriously, it's an important idea. Um, it's easy to forget. It's easy to 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 lose sight of how other people rely on you for you know good and timely information. Especially when you're not going to be able to fulfill a commitment that you know they think you're 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 bringing to them. Um, how do you do that? How do you make sure that you're 
on top of you know the the many 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 commitments that you've got so that when you see something coming that's going to you know make it difficult for you to fulfill those commitments that you're on it and quick enough to be able to give rapid information to the people who are depending on you well, I, I try to manage my life so that um, I can meet my commitments. I'm up at five every morning. By the way, I'm in my fourth career, uh, and so people at my age are already retired, and you know, for many years are doing nothing except playing golf and traveling. That's not me. And so I manage. I manage what I take on. I don't take on more than I can absorb. I turn a lot of things down if I can't do the right job. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that's asked, key. Let's just stay on that for a yeah, second. Sure. Being able to say no to opportunities. You, you have to say no to opportunities. What have you learned about how to do that effectively? You just say, thank you very, very much. It's a great opportunity, but I just don't have the bandwidth right now to absorb it. And um, if you're honest, they'll understand that. Mm-hmm. The worst thing you can do is accept an assignment or accept a job and, and only do it halfway, which doesn't help them and it doesn't help you. I know. And yet the pressure to just say, yeah, I can do that is often uh, very, very intense. I'll never forget when I uh, joined the Ford Motor Company. This was about 20 years ago. Uh, I took leave from from Wharton and spent a few years as the head of leadership development for Ford. And the first big meeting I attended with the CEO sitting right next to me, this is the CEO of a 350,000-person company, and I'm showing up at my first meeting. There's about 50 people there. It's a you know it's a big event, and uh, you know we're in a breakout at our little table of eight people, and uh, we're talking about a set of initiatives that you know were popping up as a result of this large discussion, and people around the table are saying, "Yeah, I can do that. Yeah, I'll sign up for that." And I'm like, "What? How are they possibly? Wait, am I supposed to say, yeah, 'Yeah, I'll do that' when I have no idea what it is that I'll be getting into, like these guys seem to be doing?" That was the pressure. It was really quite frightening, uh, especially because um, I didn't know what I was capable of. But that's a longer story. I don't want to dwell on it too much, but I want to raise it here as something that I think is relevant for a lot of people listening, and that is there's a lot of pressure to say yes to things when you really should say no. Right. So it takes some maturity to know when to say, no, thank you. Mm -hmm. I just can't do it, or I can't do it now. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe I'll do it next month or or when I can bring up some time, and you just have to to say no. You have to say no a lot in your life Mm -hmm. um, to keep yourself sane and to keep yourself, uh, have the ability to meet the commitments you've already made. And that's true outside of work as well, is it not? Absolutely. I'm particularly interested, you know, in the relationship between work and the rest of life and seriously um, asking about, you know, failures that you've seen either in your own life or other people's lives where they took something on that they shouldn't have outside of work and it hurt them at work. Yeah, and, 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 that, and that occurs. And I, I have an example. Okay. okay. Early in my career, I accepted a board position, um, which just sucked up so much time, and I had to. You mean uh, like a community board? Sort of this thing? was a company board. Oh, okay. Um, and I, I had to, I had to leave because it was hurting my ability to do my job, and I wasn't doing either the job correctly on the board, or I wasn't doing my my uh, my full time job correctly, and uh, and I, I had to leave with great mm-hmm. apologies mm-hmm. because again. When you uh, get involved in something, you're making a commitment to do something. Mm-hmm. And then when you can't fulfill the commitment, you feel bad, but sometimes you have to pull out. And I did. 
Mm-hmm. And they com- they completely understood. And, so don't overcommit your time. And better to pull out sooner than later. Well, sure, because then they can get somebody else in to do the job. I want to speak about individual level career success for the remainder of our time because I know that a lot of people listening are, are interested in that uh, and what you've got to say about it. So you advocate for people to differentiate themselves from, from their peers. Why is this so important? And what about being different with respect to your demographic characteristics, your race, your sexual orientation, your uh, religion, uh, how, how to deal with those aspects of differentiation in a way that is uh, an asset to you and to the people around you? Well, let's talk about diversity because I think that touches what you've just said, touches on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been in so many situations where you have people sitting around a table, around a meeting, around a committee or around a board that are all the same. They're all cut from the same cloth. They all look the same. They dress the same. They think the same. And um, and they miss things which uh, they should not miss. And I've been in other situations where you've had a nice mix of women and men on the board. You've had people of color. You've had people of all kinds of backgrounds and religions. And all of a sudden, things pop up and say, oh, yeah, we could probably solve that problem in this way, which you wouldn't see, it wouldn't, you wouldn't get to if you had a homogeneous uh, mm-hmm. uh, bunch of folks sitting around the board. So I firmly believe that the best situation to solve issues and move forward is to have a homogeneous group work on it. I'm sorry, heterogeneous. Heter- heterogeneous sorry, sorry. Yes. Heter- heterogeneous. I caught myself. Yes. Heterogeneous board. Uh, if, you, if you want to innovate, you've got to have a variety of different ideas and the sense among members that they can express their voice and be different. So what have you learned and what do you advocate and teach about how people can find a way to express their unique perspective, even if it is, well, different? Well, first, you want to hope you're in a group that accepts that. Mm -hmm. uh, Because if you're not in a group that accepts that, it doesn't work really well. Mm So one one of the one of the rules that uh, that you're familiar with and most people are familiar with is that you know we're in a session where we're going to throw a lot of ideas out on the table. Nothing is so crazy to be rejected right off. Well, let's talk about that before we kick it off the list. Mm-hmm. And um, you need to have people participate. You have to have people comment on other people's ideas. You have to compare one versus the other. Um, even in conversations between boss and subordinate. Um, you, the boss has to be tolerant of another idea because in my experience, uh, and this has worked more than half the time, um, the boss says, I think we should go direction A. A subordinate says, no, I think B is the best way to go. They mm-hmm. debate it. They bring in expertise. And uh, one of three things happens. Either they go A or they go B or they find direction C, which is completely different than A and B, and you only find it because you've debated it, mm-hmm. and you brought in other people to suggest other things. And I'll tell you, when that happens, you rarely make a mistake. We rarely made, we rarely made a mistake mm-hmm. at our company when we did that. Be- by bringing in uh, new information. Right, and, allow, and allow, see your world a little different. And right? allowing ideas and, allowing, and, and having this, the CEO debate as an equal mm-hmm with the people that are in the room. So you're no longer the CEO debating an idea. You're with everybody else. So everybody has uh, ideas are valid. And um, you find the best way that way. And it may be A or B, but most of the time we found it was C. 
only discovered because we beat A against B and B well, up against A. And, well, and that, that reflects an openness to inquiry, an openness to hearing different perspectives, which sure. starts at the tone of the top, no doubt, but it, it pervades everywhere. Uh, and everyone contributes to an environment in which others' ideas are of interest. So what do you, what do you advise people as to how to create that kind of environment where the interest is in discovery rather than shutting the other person's ideas down because they differ from yours. It all stops. It all starts, sorry. It all st- starts with tone at the top. The CEO has to be a very special individual in that he allows himself to be criticized, to have people in his face or her face about ideas which may not be uh, popular at the time with that individual, but they have to have it or aired. So how many times are people familiar with CEOs where an idea comes up and the CEO says, well, don't bother me with that. We're going to go do do it my way. Stupid. Wrong, wrong, wrong. It Mm -hmm. doesn't work. Mm -hmm. But being different can be scary, right? Uh, to, To express a point of view, especially if you're in a lower level position hierarchically, to come up and say, well, actually, no, I, I see it differently. Um, you know, even if it is a beneficent environment where ideas are encouraged, uh, how do you advise young people to, to be different in a way that is good for them and good for their, their business life and their personal lives? They have to have the courage of their conviction and say it and say, I think we should, go, I think we should do this. And they need to hope that they don't work for a boss that shoots the messenger mm-hmm. or doesn't believe in the, real, the, the reality um, of the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, but what if they do? Which many people listening will, are thinking, well, yeah, then but they you have, don't know my asshole boss. Well, then they have, to, they have to find a way to deal with the boss. So I'll tell you how I, I dealt with mine. Okay. Um, I would come up with an idea and I would tell my boss and before two sentences are out of my mouth, he would say, that doesn't work or we tried that in a, this way last year. Get out of here, Silverman. I'm busy. Right. And so I started writing a memos, wrote a memos. Mm-hmm. And uh, he'd read the page, page and a half memo. It didn't, it didn't have to give all the details, but outlined it. And he'd mm-hmm. come in and say, boy, this is a great idea. Mm-hmm. Because I wasn't in front of him. He couldn't shut me down. Ah. He said, let's kind of pursue it. Let's get it done. I said, OK, thanks, Dick. Let's do that. So change the medium. We changed the medium. And he didn't, I didn't, have, he didn't have the opportunity to say no because mm-hmm. I wasn't in the room. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I got a lot of stuff done by doing that, by mm-hmm. doing that. So put your ideas and, down on paper. Right. And another time, and this is when I worked for my uh, tyrant, um, he was yelling and screaming at me, at me It's for some some issue. I can't remember what, what it was. I said, Dick I'm, going, Dick, I'm going to leave the room, and when we can talk about this uh, calmly, mm-hmm. uh, like adults, call me up, and I'll come back up here. You can visit me downstairs. And so I left, and he said, oh, you can't leave. I said, I'm leaving. Ten minutes later, he was in my office, and we discussed it uh, as adults, and within six minutes, we had the issue resolved. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes you have to do that. You have to do that. But let me warn our listeners, um, the more you do this, the, the more you have to be assured that you have a lot of political capital within your organization. Mm-hmm. So if your boss wants to fire you, uh, the boss above him says, no, you don't want to do that. He's got too much political capital. Mm-hmm. So you want to build political capital with people so you can do those things. And you of can course, do those things. you do that by helping other people to right. achieve the goals that matter to them. Right. So when you work, work for somebody like this, you build alliances in the informal organization. Mm-hmm. 
and you help them achieve their goals. They help you achieve your goals. They give you information on who's shooting at you. You give information, the same information to them, and they help you survive. They help you succeed. The informal organization is just as important as the formal organization. Absolutely, and you've got a lot in Be Different about that. Stan, we're nearing the end of our of our time. I want to read uh, the dedication that you wrote in the book here and then ask you a question about it. So you wrote, this book is dedicated to my grandchildren, and you name them. I hope they live their lives making a difference in the lives of others to make this world a better place, as I have tried to do. There is no higher calling. Why do you say that? Well, number one, I firmly believe it. I think that our job is to uh, play it forward. Uh, for the next generation to help the next generation be successful as the previous generation has helped us be successful. We would not be where we are unless the people before us laid that groundwork to help us be successful. And uh, the lesson I want to leave my children and grandchildren is exactly the same thing. I want them to make this world a better place. And as you think about the world that they are inheriting, what what is it that you, with the time you've got left, are focusing on that that you think is going to be most helpful to them. And I ask out of personal interest as well as on behalf of the listeners. Yeah, I I think we're in an interesting world right now. Um, I think what's happening in this country is a blip in history. I think if you look back over over history since the Reformation, um, people have uh, gotten more freedom. Uh, We've given rights to people. Um, uh, civilization has moved on and it's going to continue to move on. I want my, pe- my, my children and grandchildren to play a big role in that uh, because it makes this world a better place for everyone. And I want them to, uh, to be part of that. So when you think about uh, working parents today, and you know a lot of them. Yes. Uh, and I do too. And we both care a lot about them. What's, what's the best advice you've got based on the lessons of your experience for for working parents today and the organizations that employ them? Well, for working parents, I think they want to be role models for their kids. Uh, I think when uh, mom and dad are out working, um, they're they're watched like hawks by their kids, (laughs) and so they want to do the right thing. They want to do the right thing. They want to um, instill in their children that when when they're in the leadership positions of this country, and within their businesses, they have a great tone at the top, and they set a great culture for the organizations that they're responsible for. And uh, within organizations, it's the same way. I think all of us are, are, are responsible for setting the right tone and the right example and the right culture for successful organizations. And when that happens a lot, there's going to be a lot of change. Things are going to be better. Uh, I I was speaking specifically about what organizations can do to help working parents be oh. the be the be the people that they want to be in all parts of their lives, including at work well, as well can, as at home. Yeah, they can they can understand the uh, the stress and the pressures that working moms and dads have. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have a lot of responsibility outside the workplace. Um, I think they need to give them a freedom when when possible for flexible work hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the day when, uh, you know, people track hours, even though by law you probably have to do that. I've never done it, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, when people are, um, you know, they fill out timesheets, I let them fill it out themselves. And as long as they get their work done, I don't really care what hours they work. As mm-hmm. long as they get their job done, if they have to run off. 
to visit a teacher at two in the afternoon, let them go. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you don't, it comes back to you worse. Um, they're not going to. They're going to. Their job, mind's going to be on the school and not on the job. Mm-hmm. So give them flexibility. Yeah. Give them a lot of flexibility, a lot of support. If they need to take time off, you let them take time off. A lot of trust, in other words. Right. Well, you, you don't want to have anybody working for you that you can't trust to do that. That's a good note for us to close on. Stan, thank you so much for joining me on the show today, coming to the studio. What's the best place for listeners to find out more about your wonderful book and the other work that you're doing? Well, um, they can look at my website. They can Google Stan Silverman, or I'm sorry, Silverman Leadership, and I'm the first one that'll pop up, and they can see all the articles I've written. I've, I think I'm up to 282 articles right now for the Business Journal. Um, they can go to Amazon.com, or they can go to BarnesandNoble.com and type in my name, and the title of my book will come up. Um, they can buy the book. Uh, they can... Uh, Email me with questions and comments. Uh, I would appreciate it if they're so inclined after reading the book. All right. Fantastic. To do that. Stan, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Stu, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. I hope you found my conversation with Stan Silverman to be useful to you as you strive to progress on your own journey to success in your career and in the rest of your life. Here's a challenge for you, an invitation, building on what is surely a central idea in Stan Silverman's leadership philosophy. Think about, and perhaps write about, just for yourself, one or two important ethical boundaries that you struggle to stay within, either in your work life or in some other part of your life, in your family, with your friends. What would you need to do to strengthen your ability to hold yourself accountable for acting in a way that is in accord with these one or two ethical standards? Think about that and see what you come up with. I would love to hear what you discover from this exercise. So get in touch with me directly, friedmanoutwharton.upenn.edu. I love to hear from listeners. So please don't hesitate, or you can find me on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 132, Wharton Business Radio. Tune in for on-air broadcasts of Work and Life on Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern. For more about this episode's guest and about previous guests, visit workandlifepodcast.com. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, check out our website, totalleadership.org, and my book, Total Leadership, Be a Better Leader, Have a Richer Life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, rate it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and share it with your friends, your family, your coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.